This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This episode number 17, entitled, Should Christians Pray to Jesus? This is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thanks again so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin. I am your host. Today we're going to be asking, should Christians pray to Jesus? Now, formerly, Biblical Unitarians were strongly against praying to Jesus, having an understanding that prayer should be reserved for the Father alone as the only true God. More recently, however, there has been a surge of Biblical Unitarians who have begun to feel comfortable including Jesus in their prayers to the Father. So I thought it would be a good idea to look at the subject, and I was really fascinated at how nuanced the data was when I started to study it for myself. So let's begin. Let's actually look at the act of offering prayers in the New Testament and the noun, prayer, that's also used in the New Testament. So the verb to pray appears 76 times in the New Testament, the primary verb to pray. We're actually going to see there are two different verbs translated to pray. The first verb is the Greek verb prosevkome. Used 76 times in the New Testament. It means to petition or pray to a deity. 76 times in the New Testament, but never once is Jesus Christ the object of this particular verb. That's interesting. Let's look at some examples of this particular verb, the most common verb for prayer. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, where Jesus says and commands, quote, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, the beginning of what is widely known as the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus here commands his followers to pray in this way, to pray in this manner, to where the Father, the one who is in heaven, whose name is holy and hallowed, is the recipient. So Jesus commanded his disciples to pray to the Father, and that's very interesting for our study. We can also see Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3 say the following, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's Colossians 1 and verse 3, where Paul says that he is praying always for the Colossians by giving thanks to God, who is this God? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, the Father of Jesus, God the Father, is the object of Paul's prayer on behalf of the Colossians. We can also see another verb that is translated to pray in the New Testament. This one is a little less frequent, used only seven times in the New Testament. It is the Greek verb evkome, means to pray or to make request. Sometimes it could be used to describe a wish. And seven times in the New Testament, but again, Never once is Jesus Christ the object of this Greek verb. Let's look at some examples of this. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 has Paul saying, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 7, where Paul says that he prays. To whom does he pray? He prays to God on behalf of those Corinthians. And the verb also appears in Acts 26 and verse 29. This is where Luke gives a description of Paul before one of the Roman procurators. It says, and Paul said, I would wish, that's our verb there, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, 
not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am except for these chains. That's Acts 26, verse 29, where it gets translated in the New American Standard Version as wish, but the sense is a wish and a request. It's very similar to a prayer, and it's very clear in this verse that, again, it is offered to God. So both verbs that are translated to pray in the New Testament, used over 80 times, have not a single occurrence of them where Jesus is the object of those prayers. We could also look at the noun, the noun that gets translated as prayer, used 35 times in the New Testament. It is the Greek noun prosevki, means a petition or a prayer addressed to a deity. It could also be used for a place of prayer. And again, in all 35 occurrences of this noun, it is never used with Jesus as the object. That's very interesting for our study. Let's look at some of these passages, some of the occurrences of this Greek noun for prayer. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 says, It was at this time that he, that was Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. There's that noun at the end of the verse, his whole night in prayer to God. God there very clearly is the object. Jesus is the one who is praying. That's Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Another example is in Romans 15 verse 30. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That's Romans 15 verse 30 to where those prayers are directed to God, although they are done by the urging of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of the Spirit. But very clearly, the prayers are offered unambiguously to God as the object. Also, we can see in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, a similar statement. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's Philippians 4 and verse 6, where the prayers and supplications with thanksgiving are allowing the request to be made known to God. So we have over 80 occurrences of the verb, or the verbs to pray, and 35 occurrences of the noun, that's well over 100 occurrences, and in not one of them, not a single occurrence, has Jesus as the object of that prayer. That's very interesting that the New Testament seems to take very seriously the point that it wants to reserve the verbs for prayer and the noun prayer for God the Father. That's very interesting for our study in regard to should Christians pray to Jesus. But there's more evidence on this. I spoke about how this subject is very nuanced. There's a lot of details that are involved in it. What we can see is that the practice seems to be praying to the Father, but in the name of Jesus. Or, as is commonly done today, prayers are made to the Father, and the prayers are ended with, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at some of these passages. Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 20, we see where it says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's Ephesians 5.20 to where the prayers or the giving of thanks are made to God, the Father, but they're done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus there is included in the prayers, but they're ultimately directed to God, the Father, as the prayer's object. Similarly, we can see in Colossians 3 and verse 17, where Paul states, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
That's Colossians 3.17. Again, the thanks are given to God the Father, but they are done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, John's gospel, the fourth gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of John, is very interesting for our study because neither the verb nor the noun for prayer appear in this gospel. So you won't find the verbs prayer or the noun prayer anywhere in the fourth gospel. So it's going to use some different language. It's going to use the verb to ask or the verb to request. And it's interesting to see how this appears because this gives us some interesting data that coincides with the last two verses we looked at. Let's look at some passages in John's gospel. John 14 and verse 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's John 14 verse 13, where Jesus says that you make requests in the name of Jesus. You make requests in his name. And he will actually honor those. He says, that will I do. And ultimately, the Father gets glorified in these requests. But the requests, again, are made in the name of Jesus. We can go on in John chapter 14 and see that this theme repeats. John 14, verse 14, has Jesus again saying, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So again, the requests are made in the name of Jesus. But here, it's very interesting that Jesus is the one that is actually being asked. But these requests are being made in his name. So Jesus is addressed, but they are made in his name. John 14, verse 14. Next passage, still in John's gospel, we're in chapter 15, now in verse 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's John 15, verse 16, where very clearly Jesus says that you ask these things of the Father, but you ask them in Jesus' name, and ultimately the Father is the one who will give them to you. John chapter 16, verse 23, continues this line of thinking where Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. That's John 16, verse 23, where again, the requests are made to the Father, but they are asked in the name of Jesus, and ultimately, the Father is the one who gives those things in response. And later in John 16, now in verse 26, Jesus again says, in that day you will ask in my name. So five times in John's gospel, the requests that are being made are requests in the name of Jesus, just like we saw in Ephesians, and just like we saw in Colossians. But again, the theme still seems to be that the Father, that God the Father, is the object of these requests, is the object of these prayers, and the object of these petitions. Now, what about Paul? And what did he do in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 seems to be a passage where people tend to go to when they want to identify that Paul supposedly prayed to Jesus. Let's look at this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored, that's the verb we're looking at, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times, that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
That's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9, where Paul seems to implore the Lord three times for the removal of this thorn in the flesh. A couple things we need to point out. This verb that's used for imploring is the verb parakaleo. We've not seen this so far in our study, but it's important to note that it's not the typical verb to pray or the typical verb to ask. It is a verb which means to implore, to exhort. It could be used to invite. It could just mean to speak alongside. And the Lord here, which is the object of Paul's imploring, is unambiguously the Lord Jesus. When Paul describes the Lord in his letters, almost always it is the Lord Jesus rather than the Lord God. It seems to be the Lord God when he is quoting the Old Testament. But in typical references of the Lord, it is the Lord Jesus. So Paul here unambiguously is imploring Jesus. He did it three times. So what are we to make of this verb? Well, it's difficult for us in our particular study because this verb is so widely used. It's so frequently used in a variety of different contexts and to a variety of different persons. In fact, we could see that oftentimes this verb could be used in human beings imploring or exhorting other human beings. And so that's what makes it difficult. It doesn't seem to be a very typical prayer type language. It's also used in Luke 3 and verse 18. This is just kind of there for your notes. To where John the Baptist was exhorting and preaching the gospel to the people. And it's also used in Acts 8 and verse 31. To where the eunuch invited. That's where the verb gets used. He invited Philip to come up and to sit with him on his chariot. So this verb gets used in a variety of different places. It's used by humans, given to other humans. And so it's difficult to know whether Paul is using 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9 as actual prayer language, or is it just more a general calling out, crying out request. But it's important for us to keep on the table in regard to our study here. But I do think an interesting question which we need to ask is the question, can Jesus actually hear a believer's prayer? That's an important question I think we should consider. And I think the answer, in light of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God, is a definitive yes. Jesus can physically hear a believer's prayer. How do we know this? Well, let's look at some passages. Matthew 28 and verse 18 has Jesus saying that all power and authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. Certainly he's got the authority to listen to believer's prayers. Notice, by the way, that that statement there in Matthew 28, 18 comes after Jesus' resurrection. And in Philippians 2, 9, after the resurrection, it states that God has highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus. So if Jesus has been given all power and authority on heaven and on earth, and if God has highly exalted Jesus, certainly he can have the power and authority to listen to the prayers of a believer. We could also look at the book of Hebrews, which describes Jesus as the high priest around a dozen times. It's also very interesting to note that it is only the book of Hebrews that describes Jesus as the high priest. It's actually one of the major emphases and contributions of the book of Hebrews to the New Testament. But if Jesus is the high priest, then he is the one who functions as the mediator priest role in between God in heaven and human beings that are bringing their petitions and dealing with their sins in a relationship with God. So certainly if Jesus is the high priest, then he is the one that functions in that mediator role. And if he is functioning in that mediator role as a high priest exalted to heaven at the right hand of God, then it makes sense that Jesus can hear a believer's prayer. 
Another interesting and powerfully symbolic passage appears in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and verse 8, which says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, where it seems to indicate that standing before the Lamb are these four living creatures and these 24 elders, and they're all holding a harp and these golden bowls full of incense, but these golden bowls full of incense, particularly the incense, represent the prayers of the saints. And this incense is there in the presence of the Lamb. And so the prayers of the saints are there in the presence of the Lamb, so it means that the Lamb is able to hear these things. So I think that's a good argument that Jesus is able to hear a believer's prayer. We can also see at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, there seems to be a very powerful indication that often gets overlooked in readings of this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22 has Paul saying, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, that's 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22, to where Paul ends his sentence there with this command, Maranatha. Maranatha is a combination of two Aramaic words, which are translated correctly as, Our Lord, come. And that come there is a command, it's the imperative, and it means, Our Lord, come, like Our Lord, come back, Our Lord, return. And it seems to be a very early Aramaic prayer that was used by these early Christian communities that Paul had learned and he adopted and he used in this particular document of 1 Corinthians. So there he is seemingly calling out to Jesus and saying, Our Lord, come, using what seems to be an established way of speaking to Jesus, something that was used in Aramaic. Interesting point there. And lastly, in our study, we need to look at the practice of the early Christians in that they were calling upon the name of the Lord. And that Lord there is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that this phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, or calling upon Jesus, seems to appear in a variety of places in the New Testament. And that seems to be an act of speaking out to Jesus to where Jesus can actually hear these persons. Let's look at one example, Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen the martyr, which says, they went on stoning Stephen, and he called upon and said, quote, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, end quote. That's Acts 7 and verse 59, to where Stephen called upon and stated, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen called upon Jesus there, very clearly. Romans chapter 10 and verse 12 has Paul saying, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. That's Romans 10 and verse 12, that Jesus is the Lord of those who call upon him implying that people are calling upon Jesus, and Jesus can hear those requests. The beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 seems to have another reference to calling upon Jesus. Let's look at this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, which states, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, where it speaks about many people who are calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it should also be pointed out that the Holy Spirit 
because we've spoken quite a lot about God the Father. We've spoken a lot about Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is never, ever the object of prayer, the object of calling out, the object of any beseeching, the object of, of request, the object of asking, or the object of crying out. The closest that the New Testament is ever going to come to including the Holy Spirit in any of this sort of language appears in Jude chapter 1 and verse 20. And in Jude one twenty, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's Jude one twenty, to where the believers are praying in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. They're not praying to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the object of those prayers and requests. They are praying within the sphere of the Holy Spirit's guidance, leading, power, and empowerment. So the Holy Spirit, for the record, is never the object of any of these verbs. Toward Jesus seems to be the object of some of them. So, in conclusion... We have observed that, number one, despite opinions to the contrary, the New Testament never uses the two Greek verbs translated to pray with Jesus Christ as the object. Furthermore, the Greek noun for prayer is never used with Jesus as the recipient. God the Father seems to be the primary object of Christian prayer, both in practice and as commanded by Jesus. Number two, we saw that the New Testament shows unambiguous evidence that Christians were able to communicate with Jesus by using such verbs as calling upon, asking, imploring, and beseeching. The risen Jesus is, of course, able to hear these requests because he is the exalted human Messiah and he is the high priest. And lastly, number three, we observe that the safest approach to answering the question, should Christians pray to Jesus? appears to be in following the New Testament's example of praying to the Father, but in the name of Jesus Christ. If you've enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you would like to support the work that it is doing, be sure to check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening to us again at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Again, my name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, take care.